Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 162. Brought to you, as always, by Cross Insurance, where security means strength. Rich Kimball here, along with Carrie Haskell, Farmer's Own Radio Studios in beautiful Bangor, Maine. We've got two wonderful conversations for you this week on the program. In the second half of the podcast, we talk with a filmmaker, multi-talented Dexton Debery, who uh, will chat with us about his newest series, a documentary series called Promise Land, a six-parter on Crackle, all about NBA star John ja Morant and his journey from somewhat unheralded rookie to Rookie of the Year and a leader in his community as well. And we'll talk with Dexton about that, the film and the process, as well as the filming, much like everything else, was interrupted by COVID last year. Up first, though, a very interesting conversation with former congressman, former mayor of Cleveland, and former presidential candidate, Dennis Kucinich. He has written a brand-new book called The Division of Light and Power, the document his uh, struggles battling with the powers that be in Cleveland back in the early 1970s. It's a fascinating read and a really interesting guy as well. Our conversation with Dennis Kucinich here on Downtown. Congressman, thanks for being with us. Uh, Rich, uh, first of all, thank you for the chance to be on Downtown. And you're, you're in the middle of what is one of my most favorite places in all the world, Maine. And I used to come up there all the time to visit my Uncle Frank and Aunt Mary and Norris uh, in Bangor. So, you know, this is, uh, it's just such a delight to be on the show with you. Thank you. Well, it's wonderful to have you with us. Now, I have to say, when uh, when I got the copy of the book, I thought, well, this is a, this is a large book. If, if it's going to be a large book on public policy, now, I was, a, I was a political science major, so maybe I'll enjoy it. But I have to tell you, this... It read like a thriller. This was a tremendous book. I couldn't put it down. And the most frightening part is realizing that it's all true. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, it begins uh, when I was elected to Cleveland City Council. I was 23 years old, elected to a big city uh, council. Most of the people uh, who became my colleagues were old enough to be my grandparents. And suddenly I was, um, a whole new world opened up to me in terms of, the transactional basis of politics, the idea that, you know, you vote right, you're going to, it'll be good for you personally. And then I discovered, as the book relates, the games that were going on behind the scene to try try to steal Cleveland's municipal electric system, the corporate espionage, the, sa- espionage, the sabotage, and as the story goes. <laughs> well, can you, uh, for anybody who hasn't read the book yet, but will want to, can you explain briefly that relationship that existed between municipal light and CEI? Yes. Um, well, Cleveland had its own power company since the turn of the century, uh, the 20th century. And there, uh, and a visionary mayor by the name of Tom Johnson came up with this idea, said we ought to provide power to people for cheaper than a private utility would charge it. When he was involved in the formation of it, that private utility tried to block him. But then the years go on and decades move forward, and the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, that private utility monopoly, began a secret plan that they executed to take over Muni Light. 
And that plan involved, uh, you know, inter actual interference with repairs that needed to be made on the system, political interference, uh, even blackouts. They created blackouts on the municipal system. I mean, it's a wild uh, series of events that led to the city of Cleveland inexplicably trying to sell the very system that this private company was undercutting and sell it at a discount. So I came in the middle of that and I said, wait a minute, what's going on here? And, uh, you know, I'm from Ohio, but I got a little bit of that Yankee, like, what the heck is this about? And so by asking questions that way, I stepped into a, oh my God, what a, what a battle in Cleveland we had over this municipal <laughs> electric system. Well, and as you mentioned, you were very young when you stepped in. You beat a, a longtime city councilman, and you did it, well, the old-fashioned way, by going door-to-door, door, and that was very effective. But right away, you were told to, to mind your place and, and simply stay in the back and keep quiet. Absolutely, and of course, that didn't really necessarily connect with me at all. <laughs> uh, so I found out how the utility was lobbying to block repairs to our municipal system, how they um, uh, were gaining support in the media with their advertising dollars. And then the city decides it's going to sell this system at a fraction of its value. So I start this campaign. And the minute I started the campaign, high-powered rifle shots taken uh, misses my head by a fraction. And, you know, later on, the U.S. Uh, Senate Subcommittee on Organized Crime determined that there was a, an organized crime plot to uh, assassinate me, and that was connected directly, according to police intelligence, to my stand trying to save our municipal electric system. And you mentioned the media, and that was a fascinating part of the story as well, that in, in the midst of uh, doing some opinion pieces on this situation involving the power companies, suddenly the local TV station pulled the plug, ended up firing their reporter because ad revenue was in danger and they were looking at big buys from CEI to support their point of view. Well, you're right. The, the top talk show host in Cleveland, Steve Clark, was fired because he did a show about the inequities and the high utility rates that the private power company was charging. And this uh, power company made a, made a play to buy more advertising from that station and out goes Steve Clark. And throughout the book, there's stories about people in the media who stood up and lost their jobs because the people that ran those stations or the newspapers were much more concerned about the advertising revenue than they were about getting the real facts through to the public. So, you know, this is the story is is unprecedented in American history about a, a, a concerted effort to undermine a city by a, a utility monopoly and by their banking partner later on. So, you know, I, I was a 31 year old mayor. I was the youngest mayor elected uh, uh, in the United States at that time. And, you know, I was called upon to take a stand on behalf of the people and to keep my promise to save that system. And on December 18th, uh, uh, 15th, 1978, the biggest bank in the state told me, look, either you sell that system to the Cleveland Electric Illuminating Company, uh, or we're not going to renew the city's debt on loans that I hadn't even taken out. They were taken out by my predecessor. I said, no, they put the city of Cleveland in default. Unprecedented event in American history. It was an attempt, it was extortion. There were, you know, it was a strong arm attempt. 
And, uh, you know, I, I will tell you that, you know, I was a young mayor, but I, you know, I showed that, look, just because you're young doesn't mean, you know, these corporations were going to roll over me, you know, just run over me. And I took a stand on behalf of the people. It was a, it was a tough time. We're talking with Dennis Kucinich here on Danton. In the book, you also talk about your your childhood. It was difficult. You moved a lot. It was not uh, the best of childhood growing up. How how much do you think of your efforts in politics for an effort to uh, to have some power when you felt so powerless as a child, and to help those who were also feeling powerless because of the control that was uh, in the hands of the few? You know, Rich, you know, that is a very perceptive question. And I think I would put it, I would answer it this way, that uh, I told I told myself that if I ever got anywhere in life that I could help people who were experiencing the kind of difficulty that my parents experienced when we were growing up, that, that I was going to take a stand for them, that I was going to represent their, you know, economic and social concerns. So what do you know? I got elected mayor at age 31 and I had to make a decision. Was I going to stand for the right of people to have a utility they could call their own, which provided power at rates that were 20% cheaper than the private power company? Or was I going to knuckle under, sell the electric system? The bank promised $50 million with a new loans credit if I sold. And if I didn't, they were going to put the city in default. And get this, the people voted to tax themselves in order to pay off the defaulted notes on these loans I had taken out. The banks promised, the people did that, they take us out of default. The banks reneged on their promise, kept us in default until I left office. I mean, this is the kind of, of uh, not just hardball, the kind of, of, of ruthless practices that you hear these stories about Central America, banana republics, mm-hmm. and they, they tried to turn a city into a, a kind of a banana republic. Well, there are some characters in the book. Uh, safe to say, not everyone had the purest of motives, and uh, some of these guys are, are right out of uh, every gangster movie you've ever seen, and I think especially of your interactions with a man named William Seawright. Well, you know, I mean, he was a numbers kingpin, and he was a very suave uh, individual, very sophisticated, uh, and, you know, before lotteries came in, in many communities, there was an underground lottery. It was known as the numbers game. And people would buy uh, a number based on, uh, and they'd bet on uh, the winning number being the uh, last numbers of the advance uh, declines and unchanged in the Dow Jones stock averages. And this was a big business, millions of dollars every week people would bet because for many people in the inner city, you hit the numbers, you got it made. I mean, you know, the, the, at the least, you could end up, you know, buying a, you know, having a plate, uh, paying your rent that month, paying your own bills. And at the most, you could, you know, make thousands of dollars. And so, yeah, Mr. Seawright ran the numbers. And he came to me, as I write in the book, when I was going to help somebody run for mayor, he came to me with a suitcase. He opens it up. Keep in mind, at that point, I'm about 24. He opens it up. And I'm looking at a suitcase full of money. Like there had to be $20,000 at least in 10 and $20 bills packed into the suitcase. And it's for my use, right? I'm looking at him going, whoa, what did I get myself into here? Needless to say, I pushed the suitcase back with a little spiritual assist from uh, uh, Sister Leona, who was my <laughs> sixth grade teacher, who always seemed to be 
hovering around when I had a, a moral decision to make. <laughs> well, and then he would come back and, and try to ruin your campaign uh, later on by uh, showing up at a, at a campaign rally and trying yeah. to spread vicious lies until your yeah. wife stood up to him. Yeah, I mean, it, it was a it was uh, actually a very dramatic moment where uh, he contrived a, uh, a charge of, of of sexual harassment against one of my employees. I mean, it's total setup. But he could have pulled it off, except, you know, my, my wife inter, uh, at the time intervened and just chased him off in a fury. It was a, it's an amazing scene. But yeah, I mean, Cleveland, you have to remember, in the 70s, Cleveland was the bombing capital of America. Right. Uh, you, you had you had many different types of competition going on between mobsters representing different communities, you know, the black community, the Italian community, the Irish community, and they're, they're playing for keeps. I mean, you know, if there was a tremendous competition for control of the rackets and vice and uh, Cleveland was the epicenter of that for a while. And that's when I began my run for mayor. And that's also when I experienced, uh, uh, you know, a, an assassination attempt. And, and all that largely because they, they didn't know what to do with a person whose vote they couldn't buy. That's true. Yeah, that's what I was told. Uh, uh, NBC TV later did a uh, just an incredible interview with uh, uh, a, a um, mafia, um, a convicted hitman who they put behind a screen and, you know, put a shadow over his face. And he said, he was asked, why why would they want to uh, kill the mayor? And his his answer was pretty blunt. He said, because we, he says, because we can't buy consent. That's what I was told. We can't buy consent. To me, it's like this. Look, if, it, if something's right, no one needs to pay anyone to get it done. But if it's wrong, it's wrong. And it was wrong for them to try to force me to sell an electric system which belonged to the people, which they, were, which they conspired to try to take over. And by the way, Rich, everything that I've said here has been, is backed up by records. And with respect to the activities of that utility monopoly, backed up by federal court records, where in the discovery process, we were able to retrieve tens of thousands of documents uh, about the games that were played to try to undermine our municipal electric system. I mean, they ran a military type strategy to, to knock out our municipal electric system. And eventually CEI would largely admit to all of this, but it wasn't until three years after the city defaulted. Right, right. They, they said, you know, yeah, we tried to take it over and, and, you know, look, I saw this right from the beginning. You know, I was able to see what was going on, and I said so. But, you know, it was only years later that people finally figured out that what I was telling them was right. And so I've included it all in this book, the story of a young person who gets involved in politics, who sees the corruption, who challenges it, takes a stand, gets elected mayor, the youngest mayor in the country, and then it becomes even more intense where the corporations are learning that they can't uh, – uh, they can't force this young mayor to just do whatever they want. Uh, so years later, this story becomes important because, look, when federal, the federal American rescue money runs out, there'll be a new effort of privatizing municipal services all over the country. Right. And, there'll, and there'll be an effort to have people sell their water system, their sewer system, their light system at a cut rate, right? At a cut rate. 
And uh, so this book is a, not just a cautionary tale, it's a handbook for activists. It's a, it's a means of equipping people to fight back and fight back we did in Cleveland. I think of uh, what your advisor at Cleveland State said to you when you were interested in theater, but also pursuing politics. And he said, politics and theater, pretty much the same thing. Well, he, yeah, he, he, he was right, except his partner said, uh, in, in theater, our lines are better. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I will tell you that, um, uh, you know, I would have preferred to have a low uh, profile, lower, lower uh, decibel kind of mayoralty at that time wasn't to be. I mean, I was either going to, you know, when you tell entrenched power, no, you can whisper it. But they hear the, like the roaring in their ears. And so, you know, I said no. And they fought back with everything, including threats to my life. You've said repeatedly in your career that uh, you find partisan labels confining. And, and here we are in 2021, perhaps uh, as uh, polarized as we've ever been with partisanship. Do you see a pathway out of this? Well, I'll tell you, a pathway could be, you know, the kind of uh, sentiment that has existed in Maine uh, off and on over the years. You know, I've noticed this when I traveled the country. The Maine has something special. There's an independent streak. And it, it's not just a streak. It, it, it's, it's the widest <laughs> vein, I think, that exists in politics where people aren't going to be led by their nose by a party. And, uh, you know, when I traveled the country as a presidential candidate, I saw. I, I discovered something in Maine that was different than any every other state in the union. Uh, people have uh, have there. The expectation is that government's going to be on the level. The expectation is that government is going to try to uh, cheat you out of what belongs to to you and your family. So you know, I'm I'm. Um, that, that's why talking to you today uh, on, on downtown is a big thing for me because uh, you know I've experienced a, a different kind of. You know, you could call it Yankee rectitude of, of uh, you know, you don't cheat people, you don't steal. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but the expectations are there for a certain standard of conduct. Well, in Cleveland, it was a little bit different back then. And I think it's a little bit different across the country. I think that there's a, uh, that partisan politics has become so poisonous. The, the divisiveness is bad for this country. And yes, I've I beat both political parties to get elected mayor. I beat a Democratic machine. I defeated the Republican uh, leadership. And, you know, when I when we went to City Hall, it was strictly on the basis of service to the people, not service to a political party. As you say throughout the book, the, the question is not whether government can work. It's who the government works for. That was your struggle uh, as mayor of Cleveland, making sure that it worked for the people. How do we do that as a nation? First of all, you need an informed citizenry. People need to know exactly what's going on. And, you know, this is, it's up to every one of us to, to study local, state, federal government as it relates to our, our concerns and our needs. Um, otherwise, you're, you're in a situation where you're always going to be taken advantage of. And so the first thing is to become informed. The second thing is, is there are times when you have to take action, when you can't sit back, you have to say something or you have to do something. I mean, that's what, you know, I experienced in, in my life. You know, I, I, I was somebody who came out of the neighborhoods of Cleveland. You know, I, I, nobody in my family was in politics. No one had any money. You know, we just, 
I, I came through into a system based on a desire to serve. And then I found out, whoa, this system isn't working for the people. It's working for a few interest groups. And so, you know, until politics really delivers something of, of importance to people, you know, in their own lives, you know, people just say, ah, who cares who the heck gets elected? But it does matter. <laughs> it really matters. The book is called The Division of Light and Power. It is a, a tremendous story, as I mentioned, a thrilling story to read, but also an inspiring one as well. And as somebody who teaches uh, young people about government, uh, I find it's the kind of book that will hopefully encourage young people to believe that they can make a difference in the system, regardless of their background. So, uh, Congressman Kucinich, thank you so much for your work through the years, and thank you for being with us today. And thank you for a, a exceedingly intelligent discussion about this book. And and if uh, if you end up uh, uh, recommending it to your class, give me a call. We'll do a Zoom call with the class. That would be fantastic. Thank you again, sir. <laughs> thank you. Right. Former Congressman Dennis Kucinich on downtown. His book is called The Division of Light and Power. When we come back. We talk about NBA star Ja Morant and his unlikely rookie season in the league, all chronicled in a new documentary series called Promise Land. Filmmaker Dexton Debery up next on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Our next guest is a writer, director, and producer of a number of acclaimed works, including the film Unbanned on the history of the Air Jordan. His latest is a six-part docuseries entitled Promise Land, all about NBA star John Morant in his first year in the league. We had a chance to talk about it with filmmaker Dexton Deborey. Hey, Rich. How's it going? Very well, thank you. Appreciate you making time for us. Fascinating series. What what was it that drew you to the story of John Morant? Um, I mean, two things really. You know, it was, it was this long-standing idea that I had in my head around really kind of telling the story of 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 a young player entering the league and and really diving into the experience of that, the emotional experience, the mental experience, like what was really going on for you know, in, in a lot of ways, like boys becoming men um and and sort of dreams unfolding in real time that was a notion that i felt like had not really been explored you know a lot of legends kind of recant stories of of their rookie season from you know from from years later um looking back and that's always sort of a revisionist history um just just as part of human nature and i really wanted something that was like capturing it as it was happening and almost unfiltered and 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 not, you know, not not reworked or reimagined through uh, through time and distance. So that was one. And then the other was 
really this idea of, of him as the ultimate underdog was something that, you know, completely separate from, from the first reason was something that I was tracking in him. And that's just something that resonates with me on a personal level. Cause I've, I've always kind of been the underdog. So those two things came together when his agent called me one day out of the blue and just watched the film that I had done. Um, and uh, and he he really resonated to it and and I had met him and worked with him on something very very briefly years before, so we knew each other, uh, and he said, hey, I'm about to sign this young guy. What do you think? And those two ideas just collided in that moment, and I was like, you know, hell yes, yeah. so let me get on a plane and go meet him and let's do it. Well, and you of course had no idea what his rookie year would become, either uh, on the court or uh, what what the year would be like for all of us here. But uh, let's talk about the basketball first. Uh, did you have any inclination that he was going to become what he turned into as a rookie of the year and and a real force in the NBA? You know, I mean, that was my instinct. To be honest, I I I I knew he was capable of doing that. In my heart of hearts, I I I, I really felt he was going to end up there. But, you know, on the practical side, I was also very open to whatever happened. You know, if he fell on his face, then, you know, then then it becomes a cautionary tale, you know. So I was really open to to, to it unfolding either way. And I didn't mind taking that risk because it, it wasn't it wasn't just about it has to be that he ends up, you know, a winner and a champion and and all that. It was uh, I was equally open to, you know, it, it unfolding in a different way. And, and then that would be the story. Um, but you know, I, I imagine I, I felt that he was going to reach it. Um, and I was open to him not reaching it. There's also that interesting contrast between a, a guy like Zion Williamson, who got all of the attention and, uh, that was the guy everybody was talking about. And then Ja, who came along quietly, but became immediately the better player. And that had to be an interesting uh, development as well to see how he handled that. It, it must have been it must have been interesting as a filmmaker to watch a young man realize what he was doing, but not get the acclaim early on. Yeah, it really was. You know, I mean, and we we get a lot of insight on you know sort of keeping focused and keeping the faith, um, and and you know keeping keeping yourself grounded on 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 your vision for for self-belief and, and what, and, you know, kind of what you have in mind for what your own promised land is, regardless of the world around you or people's opinions or, you know, the facts or reality or, or whatever it is that's at play. And I think that's a powerful lesson for all of us that, you know, sometimes it doesn't feel like, or it doesn't seem like, you know, we're on the path that we're meant to be on because we're failing or people are telling us we can't do it or, they're telling us no, or they're rejecting us in, in whatever field that you're entering or, or striving to conquer. And, you know, he just kept his eye on the prize and kept his head down and kept working hard and didn't feed into it. And, and in fact, I think he used a lot of the doubt and negativity to fuel his fire for proving them wrong and, and achieving the things that he knew in his heart he was capable of achieving. We're talking with Dexton Debery, his new film, Promised Land, a six-part series, uh, episode one, streaming right now on Crackle, episode two, available on the 17th. Well, uh, not only the NBA, but you as a filmmaker got thrown the big curveball that the world was thrown with with COVID-19. How did you and your crew meet that challenge in, in terms of continuing the filming process? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, it's it's uh, the I had a shoot scheduled with Ja in Memphis 
uh, on the 15th of uh, March. Uh, and of course on the, on the 12th, you know, the league shut down and travel shut down and, and the world shut down. And so I didn't get on an airplane and we canceled that shoot, but I kept some time with y'all and the family and, and recorded them over zoom. And while I was recording it, you know, I, I just, I was heartbroken, you know, cause I kept thinking like, you know, I spent the last, you know, better part of, I don't know, it was about nine months at that point or, or eight months. Um, you know, shooting with cinema cameras and, and, and giving it a look and a feel and putting energy into it. And, you know, and I, I care a lot about the aesthetic of the work that I do. Um, and it just, I was like, man, I, I can't, I, I can't accept this. Like I can't, the whole rest of the series can't be through zoom and, you know, no offense to zoom, but it's not <laughs> the same as a cinema camera. And, uh, I got off, I got off of that and wrangled my team and said, we gotta, we gotta, we gotta come up with a solve. And so we set out and invented uh, a remote kit that used the cinema camera and was, was operational remotely. Um, just, just, uh, demanding a setup on the ground by, by jaw, um, or, or one of his family members. And, uh, we deployed that, we put it together in, in, in about three and a half, four weeks, deployed it to him, to his house. And, um, he walked him through him setting it up and he set it up and we shot and, and it was a big aha moment of like, okay, I can finish this series and it can look great. And while I'm not in the room with them and I, and I wish I was, um, I can be virtually in the room with them and still get a great look and feel for the show. So uh, that's how that went down. And then that technology has been applied on, you know, a, a zillion other things I've done like since <laughs> and it actually let me shoot a lot of days during the, during COVID and didn't leave my house. Well, the story of Jaws' rise as a basketball player is great, but I think even more impressive is his growth of the, as a young man, how he became uh, a leader and in many ways a role model. How was he able to find his voice when it came to social issues? You know, and we, we, you know, we watch him kind of, uh, you know, take, take, take a step-by-step process through it, you know, kind of thinking out loud in a lot of ways on camera. And, um, and thinking it through and, and, and reacting even to what's going on. You know, I think that, you know, the, the, the beauty of what his parents were able to do was instill in him a, a really strong moral foundation um, and, a, and a belief system and a faith that's, that's extremely grounded and well-balanced um, and, and ties in even to his game. But I think when it comes to social issues, you know, he, he knows who he is. He knows who his family is. He knows what they represent. He knows what they stand for. He knows who they are as, as a family of color and who he is as a man of color. And I think he relied on that and the, the belief in himself and that strong foundation to really, you know, sort of step forward in the right way, voice his opinion in the right way and, and, um, and, uh, and, and keep his head on his shoulders about things. I think, Meeting hate with hate is a is a big mistake, and I, I think we've seen a lot of that go down. Uh, but he's someone that you know kind of met hate with compassion, and and um, and and even some level of forgiveness, and and really uh, really just wanted to express his feelings towards it all to others um, as a, as a as a means of inspiration and a way to sort of see it through. Well, episode one was terrific. Can't wait for episode two later this week. Loved your work as well uh, on Unbanned. Uh, Dex, thanks so much for making time for us today. Thanks a lot. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Dex and Deborah talking about Promised Land, streaming now on Crackle here on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to Dex, also to former Congressman Dennis Kucinich as well, and thanks to you for joining us. 
We'll catch you next time right here on Downtown.